what purpose do trials have in the providence of God? Here's Pastor Xavier Reese with the simple truth. Sometimes we are so protected and we have set up our own little paradise, so much so that we have no need to depend or turn to God because we're in control. Everything is well and fine. And if this goes wrong, I know what I can do. But then God throws a monkey wrench into the machinery and it's to turn us to himself. Welcome to Simple Truths, the daily half-hour study of God's Word with Xavier Reese, Senior Pastor of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Hardly a comforting sentiment John penned for believers in chapter 3 of his first epistle. The simple truth is, however, God can and does use persecution as a means to achieve His purposes, says Pastor Xavier. In fact, he's been illustrating the providence of God all through the hardships experienced by Esther and Mordecai, as told in the Old Testament book of Esther. Let's begin today's study of chapter 4 titled, Blessings Out of Buffetings. Persecution of the church and the people of God has always been used by God to bring about a purified body and a powerful witness to the world at large. The scriptures tell us, yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now bear with me. I'm going to read you something that's lengthy. I think it will set the stage for the study. It's regarding a man telling of a dream he had, but he didn't know it was a dream at first. He says, I saw in a dream that I was in the celestial city, though when and how I got there I could not tell. I was one of a great multitude which no man could number for, from all countries and people and times and ages. Somehow I found that the saint who stood next to me had been in heaven for more than 1,860 years. Who are you? I said to him. We both spoke the same language of heavenly Canaan so that I understood him and he me. I, said he, was a Roman Christian. I lived in the days of the Apostle Paul. I was one of those who died in Nero's persecution. I was covered with pitch and fastened to a stake and set on fire to light Nero's gardens. How awful, I exclaimed. No, he said. I was glad to do something for Jesus. He died on the cross for me. The man on the other side then spoke. I have been in heaven only a few hundred years. I came from an island in the South Seas, Iromanga. John Williams, a missionary, came and told me about Jesus and I too learned to love him. My fellow countrymen killed a missionary, and they caught and bound me. I was beaten until fainted, and they thought I was dead, but I revived. Then next day, they knocked me on the head and cooked me and ate me. How terrible, I said. No, he answered. I was glad to die as a Christian. You see, the missionaries had told me that Jesus was scourged and crowned with thorns for me. Then they both turned to me and said, What did you suffer for him? Or did you sell what you had for the money which sent men like John Williams to tell heathens about Jesus? And I was speechless. And while they both were looking at me with sorrowful eyes, I awoke, and it was a dream. But I lay in my soft bed awake for hours, thinking of the money I had wasted on my own pleasures, or my extra clothing, 
and costly car and many luxuries and realized that I did not know what the words of Jesus meant. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. I am afraid that for the major part of the Western world and the church in the West, we are in poverty of experience of this type of knowledge because we live in such lush comfort that we know nothing of this. So I pray by God's wisdom, by the power of His Spirit, that He would touch your heart and mind, not to move you emotionally, not to condemn you, but to move you to action in view of the reality of the world and of lost men and women who die every second entering eternity lost. We want to look at Esther and look at how God uses persecution for His purposes. I know that's, that's kind of strange today in our society, especially with the health and wealth and prosperity doctrine. We have come to conclude that if we are spiritual, then God will bless us materially. That has never been the priority of Scripture. That has never been the emphasis. As a matter of fact, Paul says, from those who declare that godliness is gain, depart from them. Esther, as you know, has been selected to be the queen, to sit in the place of Vashti, who refused to come in before the king. Now, Esther is in position. It's years afterwards. The first thing that we see in chapter 4 from verse 1 through 3 is that God uses persecution to draw men to himself. It says, When Mordecai learned all that had happened, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the square in front of the king's gate, for no, no man might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The first thing we notice is in verse 1 and 2 that Mordecai lamented because of what had taken place. He had learned that Haman, the wicked man, the enemy of the Jews, had come to power at this time, second to the king. And he had set out a plan to annihilate all the Jews in Persia. Chapter 3, verse 6 says, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. You see, Haman had a problem. He wanted everybody to bow to him. Mordecai would not. Because Mordecai knew that if he bowed, that meant idolatry. And so the men at the gate kept saying, well, you know, why don't you just bow? It's not going to hurt. He says, I can't. I'm a Jew. That's idolatry. And so word got out now. Mordecai is a Jew. And so now Haman says, I won't only wipe him out. I'm going to wipe out all of his people. He had learned all that had happened. He was not only affected mentally, not only emotionally, but equally physically. The evidence is there. He tore his clothes and put sackcloth and ashes in verse 1. He cried out with a lamentable cry of bitterness. He expressed it publicly. He wasn't an undercover Jew anymore. 
The word was out. But see, God used this persecution to draw him to himself. Through this very thing, he turned to God to what? To pray. Though prayer is never mentioned in the book of Esther, and it is one of the major reasons why critics say it is not an inspired book. Rubbish to that. Prayer is implied all through the book. For Jews never did this outward manifestation without including prayer. And so who is really Mordecai turning to? He's turning to God. He realizes that he can no longer live within that control environment which he thought so secure. God had brought him to a point that turned him to him. God will bring you and myself to whatever extent he needs to, to turn you to him. Sometimes we are so protected and we have set up our own little paradise, so much so that we have no need to depend or turn to God because we're in control. Everything is well and fine. And if this goes wrong, I know what I can do. But then God throws a monkey wrench into the machinery and it's to turn us to himself. Equally, in verse 3, all of the Jews of the provinces likewise turned to God as they learned of what had taken place of the plot of evil Haman. They equally afflicted themselves mentally, emotionally, physically. They were completely involved and they turned to God in prayer. Why? Because persecution had come. The apostles of the early church in Acts chapter 4, verse 29, as they began to be persecuted, he says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Persecution has always turned the people of God to seek the Lord. Always. Read the history books. Jesus promised in Matthew 5:10, Blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And if we are persecuted, he goes on to say that we're in good company, for so they persecuted the prophets of old. Now I have to confess to you that I am lacking in this experience. I have never been persecuted. I've had some difficulties. I've had some opposition. But I have never been persecuted for my faith. And therefore I think I am really poor in that certain area. There's a book that I would recommend for each of you this week. You can read in about a couple hours. It's called The Church in China by Carl Lawrence. Let me quote you a little section from those who have laid their lives down and have experienced persecution in the 20th century. We're not talking about the first century, the 20th century, so that you don't think that we are a different church from the first apostolic church. He says, the coming together of the house church fills the words of one of their own set, as they said. They used persecution, violence, handcuffs, swords, labor teams, and prisons. They shamed us publicly in display. They took away all of our rights and privileges of daily life. They have closed our churches, burned our Bibles, and put our pastors in jail. But they cannot destroy the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, since Mao took over in the 60s and all the missionaries were kicked out, God brought a tremendous revival through persecution of Mao. And he did by his spirit what no amount of missionaries had ever done. Through what? Through TVN? 
No, through persecution. 20th century I'm talking about, not first century. God uses persecution to draw men to himself. He allowed those people to turn to him. They had no way else to turn. And God began to work in the heart of those persecuted Chinese. To amaze the world 20 years afterwards as we go in to see, thinking that we're going to go in and we're going to just, you know, begin to preach. And Lord behold, we walk in and there's an underground church, <laughs> more pure, more powerful <laughs> than we have ever known. But not only does God use persecution to draw men to himself, but he uses persecution to unite his people. In verse 4 through 9, it says that so Esther's maid and eunuch came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called Hattach, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. So Hattach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplications to him and plead before him for her people. So Hattach returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. God uses times of persecution to unite his people together. Esther is distressed deeply at her attempt to comfort Mordecai. But notice that at first our usual response is when we see somebody hurting, we try to comfort them in an easy way. Here, put on some new clothes. Here, have a new house. Somehow, not only in the Western mind, but in our human aspect, we think that we throw enough money and we give enough material things that that's going to solve our spiritual problems. Nothing could be further from the truth. It is because of materialism that we have many of our problems. Now, I'm not doubting Esther's sincerity or compassion. It was just something natural for her to do. But isn't it interesting that which becomes natural usually becomes problematic? And it's like putting a Band-Aid on something that needs surgery. The Bible says when one member suffers, we all suffer. You don't have to look all the way to China. You don't have to go all the way back to the time of Esther. There are people in this body suffering and hurting. And we walk in and out every Sunday, and we're unaware. If that isn't enough, look to your neighborhoods. There's elderly people that are eating dog food. There's elderly people that can't mow their lawns, paint their houses, so they just become dilapidated. There's people who are starving to death, and they'll be found one morning dead on a curve or a park. Mordecai refuses the comfort, because that's not what he was looking for. Esther inquires as to the nature of the lamentation in verses 5 and 6. And Mordecai declares the problem and the need in verse 7 and 9. He tells of the evil man Haman and his plan to destroy all the Jews in verse 7. He gives a copy of that decree which he had written up himself and sealed with the ring that the king had given him so that nothing had to go through the king. 
he had the power of the king. And then at the end of verse 8, we have Mordecai's plea for Esther to intercede. Now, this is where it gets heavy. Because though I do not doubt Esther's sincerity and desire to help, when she receives the news, she begins to assess if she really wants to help. So often when we come to people, we say, well, if there's anything I can do for you, let me know. Now, we usually say that for one of two reasons. We want to be courteous, even though there isn't a need. Or we know there's a need, and I'm saying it well knowing that they're never going to call me. If you know there's a need, don't say it. Just go do it. Help them, because they will never call you. And so the message comes back to her, and the story's going to change a little bit. But see, it's this persecution that is going to be uniting Esther and Mordecai in that common bond. Even as history teaches us, when the Christians were taken to the Roman arena, the Colosseum, and that very persecution to be devoured by lions, the history books tell us that they walked out hand in hand singing praises unto God. Now, I know that I cannot do that. But I also know that if God ever put me in that position, that he would give me the power and the strength to do it. You see, persecution is not drawing from my own resources, but persecution is looking to God, drawing from him, because I am unable. God uses persecution to unite his people together. But not only that, but he uses persecution to disturb the saints' comfort. Verses 10 and 12. Then Esther spoke to Hattach and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law. Put all to death except the one to whom the king holds up the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself had not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. God uses persecution to disturb the saints' comfort. Esther was in the palace. She had spent a whole year in perfume and oils. <laughs> a time when she didn't know what was going to happen. But finally, she was declared queen. It's been years she's been in there, having the best of life, anything she wanted. All of a sudden, her comfort is disturbed. And so Esther can see only but objections. She sees only the obstacles. Whenever God disrupts my comfort, all I can see is the obstacles. All I can see is how it's going to affect me. That's what comfort does. First, she observed her objection is no person can approach the king unless he has been petitioned because there's only one law and one law for everybody, and that is death. Secondly, only his scepter can save you. If he raises it up, that means he gives you grace and you can enter in before him. But you take a chance. Third, the king had not called Esther for 30 days. 
Though all of these observations were true, they all have the emphasis on what it's going to cost her. <laughs> Isn't it funny? That's always where we put the emphasis. What it's going to cost me. Hoping that as I share this, the person will say, well, that's okay. Don't worry about it. And I can walk away saying, Phew, thank God. No, thank Satan. Thank your flesh. But don't thank God. Comfort always causes us to center on self. That's why I believe the church in the West is the weakest in the world. Comfort always causes us to see the difficulty of the situation and not the possibility in God. Comfort always causes us to excuse ourselves at any cost. And I want you to know that I'm preaching to myself as well as you. I am no exception. I blush when I go abroad and teach and individuals come and share what God is doing in their life, I feel like I should get off the pulpit and sit and put them on the pulpit and learn. There was a young 19-year-old girl in the church in China who was persecuted for her faith, given a chance to recant her faith. She refused. She was beat to a pulp. She was dragged to a prison and thrown in a cold, dungy cell, damp, rat-infested, vermins in it, bleeding, laying on human excrement. As she came to, she felt something warm, and she felt that it was blood protruding from her body. She began to pray to the Lord that he give her strength, and then began to seek how he, she could serve him within that small cell. As she regained her strength, she looked at her cell with other people who she couldn't even recognize because they had been beat so much. She saw that human excrement was just everywhere. She called the guard and asked him if she could clean the cell, if she could get him, he could get her a bucket of water and brushes. So amazed was the guard that he responded to her positively. As she did so, God showed her that that was to be her ministry while in prison. And she requested that she could go from cell to cell cleaning up the human excrement. And in this way, she was able to look into the faces of those who had been beaten beyond recognition and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tremendous. Sometimes I get angry at the Church of the West. We are bothered to be discomforted by taking some time out of our busy schedule and to go visit someone who is sick in the hospital and lay hands on them and pray for them. That's not the preacher's responsibility. That's each of us. To sacrifice a Friday night out so I can be fully prepared for my lesson for the children or my ministry on Sunday morning. Prayed up. Now you can understand why I get embarrassed because it applies to me too. Tremendous ministry God gave this woman. 19 years old. Everything to live for. And yet she chose to die for it. God uses persecution to disturb our comfort. Very much so. Pastor Xavier Reese, Finding Purpose in Persecution through our Simple Truth Study series of the Book of Esther. 
Now you can hear this message again anytime online by simply selecting today's date at the radio listings link you'll find at calvarychapelpasadena.com. And there's much more to come of this study right here next time as well. But if you won't be able to join us, you can always pick up a copy for your own continued study. The title to ask for is Blessings Out of Buffetings, and it's available on CD for only $4. And this would be a great tool you can pass along to someone in your church or Bible study. So once again, the title to ask for is Blessings Out of Buffetings, or simply mention today's date. You can request your copy by writing Simple Truths. 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. Or to make your request by phone, call 800-926-1485. Again, that's 800-926-1485. Or the address once again is Simple Truths, 2200 East Colorado Boulevard, Pasadena, California, 91107. And thanks for telling us the call letters of this station in all your correspondence. This is one way we have of checking on the impact of this outreach. Is there blessing in persecution? Pastor Xavier Reese says there is in the providence of God's will and wisdom. And that's coming up on the next Simple Truths. Hope to see you then. Simple Truths with Pastor Xavier Reese, a daily half-hour broadcast, is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Pasadena, California, www.calvarychapelpasadena.com.